Hi, good evening everyone. My name is Jerry Gallagher. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the Museum of the City of New York. On behalf of Whitney Donhauser, the museum's director, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the museum. Um, how many have never been to the museum before? Oh, good, good, good. Glad to have some new people here. Welcome, welcome. Um, the museum had, uh, does so many wonderful things. In addition to our public programs, our family programs, and our education programs, which service over 54,000 students and educators um, each year, we have a, a slew of wonderful exhibitions throughout the building. Um, if you are a neighbor or work in the community or live in the community, you can come to the museum for free. Uh, it's one of the things we're really proud of. Uh, it's called a I'm a Neighbor program. If you come to our admissions desk and just say I'm a neighbor and give them your zip code, you can get free admission to the museum. That's at any time. The museum is open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, we have wonderful ongoing exhibitions right now. Upstairs on the first floor is New York at its core. It's a permanent exhibition that takes a look at 400 years of New York City history in two galleries. And the third gallery takes a look at the possibilities for the future of New York, um, especially with the things that you guys are talking about tonight. Uh, I think the Future City Lab would be really interesting to you. Our Activist New York exhibition is upstairs on the second floor. It takes a look at 14 different social activist movements in New York City history. We have several exhibitions that are closing very soon, so if you haven't seen them, I encourage you to see them. Right outside in the hallway here, we have Phantom Fashion 30, which celebrates the 30th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. That closes on Saturday, so before you leave tonight, take a look at that. Uh, we also have Stanley Kubrick photographs through a different lens. That closes on January 6th, as does Rebel Women, Defying Victorianism. That closes on January 6th also. Um, some other exhibitions that are up, up for a while, Interior Lives, Contemporary Portraits of Chinese in America. Germ City, Microbes in the Metropolis, and yes, it's actually really fascinating. Um, everybody always goes to the bathroom to wash their hands after seeing that exhibition. I don't know why, but it, it's good, it's good. Um, and then a new exhibition that just opened up about a week ago is called A City for Corduroy, Don Freeman's New York. If any of you have read the children's book Corduroy about the little teddy bear who is missing a button and he's missing a pocket, um, that's written by Don Freeman. And so we have a great exhibition upstairs celebrating the work of Don Freeman. Um, and coming up in January, we have In the Dugout with Jackie Robinson. And opening in March, we have Cycling in the City. Um, the holidays are coming, so I have to do my development staff uh, service by letting people know that if you are looking for the perfect gift for somebody, the gift of membership to the Museum of the City of New York uh, fits everybody. So thank you. I'm going to turn things over to Brian Schwagel and Lisa Gibson. Well, we are just so happy to be here. This is one of my favorite hidden jewels of New York City. The exhibits that change over all the time are just so informative. And just right on the money for our committee here, which is the Public Policy Committee of Cornet, the corporate real estate network, global corporate real estate network in New York City. And we're just so happy to sponsor you today and for this lovely cocktail party that we're putting on for you. There is just great information that you're going to learn today. But really, take him up on the opportunity to stop by these exhibits. It's phenomenal. You're here. Take advantage of it while you have it. I'm here to thank Lisa Gibson, our committee chair, who helped put this all together with some of the other people here. And uh, Lisa's done a phenomenal job, but uh, she uh, wanted me to say a few words on behalf of Cornet. These are our amazing sponsors who help pay for your cocktail party tonight, right? So we want to say thank you to them. The Corporate Real Estate Network is made up of people 
who are involved in the world of real estate, mostly for Fortune 500 and other corporations in New York City, which are flourishing right now, thank God, in New York City, as we can say with the Amazon situation, but also have to deal with the issues related to the city. Public housing, affordable housing, um, uh, transportation, education, and uh, all sorts of other issues that are just so important, sustainability. And that's why our public policy committee wanted to bring these issues to the forefront because you can't have a good corporate community, you can't have good corporate real estate, you can't have a great New York City if you don't address all of these issues. So I wanna say thank you on behalf of everyone for our participants today. I wanna say thank you to Lisa who looks absolutely fabulous in this oh jacket, gosh. right? <laughs> and um, looking forward to a great program today. Lisa, do you have anything else you wanna say? Just wanted to say thank you again to all of our speakers, um, to the Berman Group and Henry for doing an amazing job of putting this together. And I'm a big fan of this museum. Been here many times over the years for many events just spend a whole lot of money in the bookstore on the way in. So <laughs> recommend that everybody does that. Great gifts, great books. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. And we're going to introduce Henry now, who's going to get the program rolling. So thank you very much. Also, please take a cocktail, but take a seat. It's much more comfortable. Uh, now I'm a little paranoid from all the microbes uh, that might be on this thing. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for coming out to Coronet and Community Board 11's Affordable Housing public-private partnerships, and workforce retention workshop. My name is Henry Flores, like Brian said. I'm a global real estate manager at Warner Media Group, a member of Cornet's Public Policy Committee, and the vice chair of CB11's Housing Committee. On a personal note, affordable housing has deeply impacted my family's lives and enabled us to break out of the cycle of poverty. Um, I'm a Dominican immigrant who's lived in East Harlem for 36 years. When my family first immigrated here, we live in the rent-subsidized six-story walk-up on 112th Street. Um, we then moved into public housing at James Weldon Johnson Houses. After graduating high school, I went to college and lived in a dormitory at Middlebury College on a full merit scholarship, another great subsidy, you might say. After graduating college, I came back and lived in the projects with my mother, Anna, while I saved enough money to put a down payment on a home a few years later. My home turned out to be an affordable housing lottery cooperative on 119th Street. I still live in the same home to this day with my wife, Veronica, who's sitting over there, uh, and our daughter, Mia, who's three years old. Sadly, a lot of our friends and family have not been as fortunate and can no longer live in Manhattan or some of the other boroughs. My brother, for example, lives in Newark. Rampant displacement is an issue that tons of New York City residents are facing every day. Consider the fact that from 1970 to 2010, household incomes have essentially remained stagnant while rents have basically doubled. To address the housing crisis, city, state, and federal, the federal government have devised many programs to encourage private developers to own and manage affordable housing units in exchange for subsidies. In doing my research for this workshop, I was astonished at some of the numbers I saw. Now, I've seen them before, and I'm sure you've heard them too, but for example, of New York City's population of 8.6 million, over half a million residents live in public housing and or Section 8. And millions more rely on other forms of subsidized housing and rent controls. Consider another thing. The median household income for a family of four in New York City is $63,000. If this family, per the government's affordability guidelines, should not pay more than 30%, and we know that's you know bogus, but if they should not pay more than 30% in rent, they can only afford to pay $1,600 a month. However, 
the average rent for a two-bedroom in New York City is $3,750. This simple math problem shows the overwhelming need for more subsidized housing units. But while the wait list for affordable housing apartments keeps growing exponentially, the subsidies that support the affordable housing apartments are set to expire. If these subsidies are not renewed, those apartments will then become market rate, leading to further displacement of local residents, which will make workforce retention even harder for companies. In devising tonight's program, we realized that affordable housing is a very complex topic, and we only have an hour to do so. To, the, to that end, we have three expert panelists to help guide us through it. Thank you all for your time and your effort tonight. First up, Jeremiah Schlopman, an attorney with the Legal Aid Society who advocates for low-income tenants, will discuss what is affordable housing, who can afford it, and some of the existing affordable housing programs in the city. Next, Matthew Gross, to his right, a managing director and partner at Urban Builders Collaborative, a successful local affordable housing developer, will dissect a case study on what it takes to build one of their low-income housing tax credits, or wait for your first acronym, LITEC deals. Finally, George Janes of George Janes & Associate will help us understand how zoning laws relate to affordable housing projects, specifically here in East Harlem, how the rezoning affected our community and what goes forward in the future. Now, my co-host Xavier Santiago, Vice Chair of CB11, has a few words to ask before we kick off the program. Please remember to leave your questions to the Q&A session at the end. We gotta keep moving at a fast clip here. Thank you for coming out tonight and we hope you enjoy the program. Good evening, everyone. All right, we're alert. That means we've got enough uh, libations consumed. Thank you, Henry, for sharing your personal experience um, and shedding some light on the statistical realities of affordable housing, realities that many families face across our great city today. Thank you to the Museum of the City of New York for providing a wonderful venue. Definitely going to recommend seeing the Kubrick exhibit. It's worth it. Um, Thank you to Cornet for helping co-sponsor and bringing this event to our community. My name, as Henry said, is Xavier Santiago. I serve vice, as vice chair of Community Board 11 and also sit on our housing committee with Henry, Jeremiah Schlopman, and along with other members who are in attendance today. But first, what does a community board do? The condensed version is that we are a city charter mandated body appointed by the borough president and our city council members. We must either live or work or have a significant interest in the community district. Our responsibilities range from reviewing zoning applications to approving liquor licenses and much more. But more importantly, we advocate for the community. We are on the front lines of activism and education. The Housing Committee is probably one of the most important committees for our district. This event is part of the continued commitment to finding innovative and creative approaches to solving our housing crisis. This workshop, which we hope can be one of many, is to help lift the shroud and provide invaluable insight to the interconnectivity of the various partners that make affordable housing possible. Like my co-host, the benefits of affordable housing allow for an upward mobility in my family story. Five generations from the island of Puerto Rico have lived and worked in this city. Between Spanish Harlem and the South Bronx, each generation called this part of our great city home. Equally so, affordable housing has laid the foundation for success when my own father was raised by a single mother in the Millbrook houses. 
Like Henry, after I graduated Bowdoin College, also in a merit-based scholarship, I moved to New York and lived in rent-stabilized apartment. Like many families, we worked and saved every penny to permanently plant our roots in Spanish Harlem. Now my wife, two sons, and our two dogs, and I live a few blocks from here. But these stories are becoming increasingly rare. As you can see, we are presenting two sides of the same coin. It's a how affordable housing is crucial to the success of future generations and bridging the gap of the socioeconomic divide. However, with the rezoning of the neighborhood and others throughout New York, we face a dearth of affordable housing as the rungs are pulled out of the ladder. With continued development, families that have shaped the very soul of our community find themselves unable to remain. Furthermore, their children who wish to return to the community they know and love now find themselves without the same opportunities that benefited their parents. But let's remember that this demand for affordable housing is not exclusive to New York City. As our sister cities of London, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Atlanta, and others struggle to cope with the rising homelessness rates, where they have failed, New York has persevered. So the pathway isn't closed. In listening to our program, I implore you to explore, to listen, take notes. We right now possess the opportunity to learn and collaborate further and thus find tenable solutions and prevent further loss to this invaluable resource. After our workshop today, we welcome you to network because the next great idea may emerge from you. Also, the presentation will be posted on Community Board 11's website and a podcast will be available for download. Those who have further questions, we welcome you to our housing committee held every first Tuesday of the month 6.30 p.m. at 1664 Park Avenue. For this and more information, please visit our website. Ready to write it down? Yeah. CB11M.org. That's M for Manhattan. Again, a polite reminder to please hold all your questions until the end of the presentation. Silence your cell phones. And without further delay, I'd like to welcome our first presenter, Jeremiah Schlitman. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jeremiah Schlotman. I'm a staff attorney with the Legal Aid Society of New York City, where I represent low-income tenants who are facing eviction. And I'm also the chair of the Housing Committee of Manhattan Community Board 11 right here in East Harlem, which uh, Xavier has just uh, given you all an overview of. And we would love to see you all come out to our committee meetings, collaborate with us. There's a lot of housing issues coming down the pike. Uh, dealing with public housing, dealing with uh, the development of new affordable housing, the rezoning that had that's passed in East Harlem. We're going to have just an array of issues that we're going to be trying to tackle, and we uh, value all of your input. What is affordable housing? The federal government subsidizes the rent of low-income households who qualify as low-income tenants. The idea of what is affordable, the government has established at 30% of your gross income. So if we're looking at this, some, just simple overview of uh, HUD funding for Section 8, for example, the government contracts with local, HUD funds local public housing authorities, like the New York City Housing Authority, the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, or the Division of Homes and Community Renewal, who are the three public housing authorities in New York City who are in charge of Section 8 housing. 
Those PHAs then in turn contract with landlords and the tenant signs a lease directly with the landlord. The tenant then pays 30% of his or her income directly to the landlord and then the remainder of the, the balance of the contract rent is paid by the PHA directly to the landlord. What is area median income or AMI? Henry mentioned it in his introduction. The AMI in New York City as of 2017 for a family of four is $62,909. Okay, that's New York City uh, overall. But if you look over at the chart, you'll see all the income bands for extremely low income, which is zero to 30% of AMI, or very low income, which is 31 to 50% of AMI. If you look at those bands, so we look at the family of four, it's 62,909 for AMI in, the, in New York City. But if we're looking at extremely low and low income, that's only 40, a max of $47,700 for that same family of four. And here in East Harlem, the plurality of our constituents are in that extremely low income band, zero to 30% of AMI. We also have the largest concentration of public housing in the country here in East Harlem. So these are issues that are very near and dear to the community board's heart and to our constituents overall. The majority of our constituents here in Community District 11 are extremely low income or very low income. So they're at or below 50% of AMI. By the way, the next biggest group is uh, low income. So even if we go up from the majority being very low or extremely low income here in East Harlem, then the next biggest group is 51 to 80% of AMI. So East Harlem still generally skews towards the lower ends of the AMI bands. New York City's major affordable housing programs, I'm not gonna go over them one by one. You've got a chart up here. Uh, but what I do want to draw your attention to is the fact that public housing is the only program that is permanently affordable and does not expire. It's the only one of its kind. You'll probably hear later on when we talk about zoning, uh, mixed inclusionary housing, a lot of you probably know about. That is a, a new form of permanent affordable housing that's being introduced and we'll talk more about who qualifies for that. Besides public housing, the next biggest is the Housing Choice Voucher Program or Section 8. So Section 8, we, I explained it in an earlier slide, rental subsidy that provides eligible families with a voucher enabling them to pay no more than 30% of their monthly wages towards rent and they contract on the private market for their apartments. And here's just a chart to further put into uh, a stark picture showing you how quickly a lot of these units are going to be expiring from affordable housing programs. So fully 40.3% will expire in New York City by the year 2033, which will be here before you know it. So aside from the slides, there's a few things that I wanted to just touch base on. I wanted to make it clear that we're operating here in New York City against the backdrop of an affordable housing crisis. New York City shelters have over 61,000 individuals living in them. 
and that doesn't account for the countless others that are out living on the streets. The city of New York this year alone, 2018, spent $1.8 billion on shelters. 44% of New York City households are rent burdened. And rent burdened is defined as spending more than 30% of your gross in monthly income towards rent. Of those 44%, so nearly half of New York City households are rent burdened, but of those, 50% of these are what's known as severely rent burdened, which means that they pay over 50% of their income towards rent. We have in New York City nearly 1 million households under 200% of the federal poverty line, which means roughly $40,000 per year for a family of three. Of those 1 million households who are at or below 200% of the federal poverty line, 29% have housing support in the form of public housing, Section 8 voucher, or some other public program. But a full 53% of these families at or below 200% of the federal poverty line live in unsubsidized housing. All right, so they're out there paying sometimes market rent, or they're paying uh, rent-stabilized rent, or rent-controlled rent, as we'll probably talk about more down the line here in the program. So you're looking at 368,000 households that are at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. And to give you an idea of what that means, the Mayor, Mayor de Blasio, who's made affordable housing a cornerstone of his mayoralty, his Housing New York program aspires to create or preserve 300,000 affordable units by the year 2026. So that's 300,000 affordable units total, but we have 368,000 households who are at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. And of, also, a further thing to take into account is that of those 300,000 units that the mayor wants to create or preserve, the majority of those units, 56%, are geared towards those between 51 and 80% of AMI. So we're leaving behind the extremely low and the low-income folks. What I find to be most important here when we're talking about affordable housing and tenant protection are rent stabilization laws. So these laws protect nearly a million households in New York City. These laws are set to expire on June 15, 2019. Now, rent stabilization is wonderful. I can tell you that as a tenant's attorney, uh, particularly representing low-income folks, if we didn't have rent stabilization, I, don't even, I can't even fathom where <laughs> we would be right now in, in talking about housing in New York City and the market. But those laws have been watered down progressively over the years. Uh, there's been a lot of friction with Republicans who had controlled the New York State Senate as well as the IDC. Now, however, as many of you know, or everyone should know, we had a sea change here in the last election. And we've got only for the third time in 50 years a democratically controlled Senate as well as Democratic senators who won primaries against IDC, uh, Democrats who had caucused with the Republicans. So tenant advocates see this as a very unique opportunity 
to bolster the rent stabilization laws. And to give you a, a few of the policy proposals that we are proposing and advocating for is one is a repeal of the Erdstadt law. The Erdstadt law in 1971 prohibits home control. So New York City cannot pass any laws that increase protections uh, beyond what rent stabilization provides that's passed in Albany. Nor can the city bring into rent stabilization any unregulated units on its own. Another proposal is the vacancy bonus uh, and elimination of the vacancy bonus. The vacancy bonus is where when a, ten a rent stabilized tenant moves out of an apartment, before the next tenant moves in, the landlord can raise the rent by up to 20%, plus rent guidelines board increases. Okay, so this allows, so as, as many of you know, uh, there are, especially under the de Blasio administration, the rent guidelines board has been passing very low increases. You can only increase the rent by a certain percentage uh, on a one-year or two-year lease renewal, which the tenant has a right to, and those have been low numbers. But if a tenant moves out and one moves in, you can raise the rent by up to 20%. It's known as the vacancy bonus. And that can lead to rents jumping up, uh, as you can tell. And it also incentivizes landlords to pressure tenants out of their homes in order to take advantage of this vacancy bonus. Also, preferential rent reform. Preferential rents, on their face, look like a good thing. The legal rent, so the rent-stabilized apartments have a legal regulated rent, which must be registered with the Division of Homes and Community Renewal every year. And that's the maximum rent that the landlord can charge. However, a preferential rent is a rent where the landlord, even though it has the right to charge a certain legal rent, just decides to give the tenant a lower rent. If a tenant gets that rent, then there's supposed to be an array of um, writers that explain what a preferential rent is, which may or may not be given to the tenant. But the problem with preferential rents, which seem good on their face, is that they can be revoked by the landlord upon a lease renewal or a vacancy in the apartment. Um, the more disturbing is, is those who are living in an apartment and they renew their lease. So you have somebody who's, uh, let's just say, paying $750 per month in a rent-stabilized apartment, but it's a preferential rent. The landlord may, upon a renewal, hike the rent up to $2,000 because the landlord says, that's the legal rent. I've been charging you voluntarily a preferential rent the whole time, but this is the actual legal rent, and if you want to stay, you have to pay it. Advocates are concerned about this practice because it contravenes the spirit of the rent stabilization laws, which is that we give stability to the tenants. And then finally, uh, one, a proposal is the elimination of the high rent vacancy decontrol. So right now, with legal regulated rents, if an apartment, a rent stabilized apartment, reaches $2,700 per month, if it reaches that threshold, and there's a vacancy in the apartment, the landlord can remove that apartment permanently from the rent stabilization rolls, and it converts to a market apartment with anything, any amount that the landlord wants to, to charge, or as much as the market can bear. So those are some proposals that tenant advocates are fighting, are fighting for. Um, and I think are some of the most important things that we need to be focused on. 
another thing is a way that rent stabilization can work and overlap with the Section 8 program is uh, the Section 8 voucher, there is a maximum rent that the public housing authority will pay for an apartment. That's called the voucher payment standard. That rent is the maximum rent that HUD has determined is uh, a fair market rent for this unit. So if a unit, let's say, is $2,000 for a three bedroom, I can tell you that that's fine. That is covered by the housing voucher payment standards. The tenant will pay 30% of his or her income and the rest will get taken care of by the public housing authority. But if the rent exceeds, let's say the market rent is $4,000 for that same apartment, then the tenant will pay 30% of his or her income plus the difference between what HUD pays uh, the, up to the maximum that HUD pays. So if you have a rent stabilized apartment that can work alongside, along with the Section 8 program to provide for stable increases for the tenant, stable and predictable increases. A final topic that I wanted to uh, quickly mention here is the idea of operating subsidies. So the city comptroller, Comptroller Stringer, issued a proposal that I think we need to seriously consider. It's the idea that the city would give Section 8 type vouchers to tenants in New York City in order to subsidize their rents, but without interfering with the building's operations and ongoing maintenance. So the comptroller proposed investing $125 million per year in these vouchers and $375 million per year in new capital funds to build housing targeted to tenants at or below 50% of AMI. Now, the, this is an idea I can tell you that uh, I would like to see occur alongside the strengthening of the rent stabilization laws, uh, but I'm a tenant advocate here. Um, this uh, actually idea for subsidies is one that's supported by a majority of New Yorkers over additional tax breaks and over expansion of the shelter system. And it's one of overlap actually with uh, pro-landlord groups. So the Rent Stabilization Association, for example, a trade union of landlords, um, a trade union which represents landlords, opposes those strengthening of those laws that I just ran through in the rent stabilization law, uh, rent stabilization law, but actually advocates for an alternative position that the city should be subsidizing, giving rent subsidies to tenants in order to help them afford their apartments. So that's actually an area of overlap uh, between tenants and landlords. And I just want to give a final note that we need to be thinking when we think about how to fund new developments. Uh, there's also a lot of people that are high need. So we have not only for-profit developers, but they're not-for-profit developers and supportive housing developers. And they're very important to the fabric of our community as well. We need to be keeping in mind how, as we continue to discuss our program tonight, uh, the supportive housing needs can be met in our community, which includes people with disabilities, uh, those that were formerly incarcerated, veterans, formerly homeless, and seniors. So this is 
for us some very important topics that I hope that you all will consider and join us in, uh, in continuing to debate, continuing to strengthen the dialogue, and hopefully will join us in our, our fight for the reforms that we wish to see, uh, because these are much needed reforms that will lead to a more affordable and equitable housing situation here in East Harlem and in New York City at large. So thank you. Thank you, Rear Jeremiah. That was very, very informative. So now we're moving on to Matthew Gross, who's going to talk about structuring and financing an affordable housing deal, uh, LIHTC, and a tax-exempt bond as instruments. So Henry and I had some uh, crossover with, uh, you mentioned the city of Newark and your brother, which is like the sixth borough where I was at today, and uh, we're active in. And, um, and I, I think we're lucky in New York because of the... Um, the sophistication of our capital programs with the city, uh, with the Housing Development Corporation and uh, HPD. Uh, so we're pretty lucky here in, in the city of New York and the state of New York. Um, uh, New York and California have the most capital available for uh, affordable and supportive housing. And, uh, and I would just say, as a landlord, um, I agree with a lot of what Jeremiah mentioned. I think there's sort of two extremes. I think you got the Rebney guys and you have the, the tenant advocate grassroots and I feel like there is definitely some middle ground and there needs to be some, uh, some movement there. So I, I agree. I do think there's some nuances, you know, as a landlord, I think that have to be discussed and, and, and debated. And I think if we go too extreme, it can kind of sway the balance a little too much. I think there's a lot of variables, but, um, but I, it's great to hear and, and, you know, excited that we do have a a sea change here in, in the politics. We can really have a real debate and some, and some change, so it's, it's good to see. All right, so I'm here to talk about um, structuring and financing an affordable housing deal and just a, a little background. So Urban Builders Collaborative is the uh, real estate development affiliate of Latier Construction. Uh, Latier is Nick and Gerard Latier, who have been based up in East Harlem uh, for a generation. We've been over on 110th between 1st and 2nd Avenue for about uh, 40 years. Uh, we co-developed the tapestry on 124th and 2nd Avenue, uh, the first 50-30-20 mixed income bond uh, project in the city. Uh, we also co-developed and built uh, Hob Siena, which was uh, on a 99-year ground lease with NYCHA on 100, uh, on 100 and 102nd Street. It was a block-through site. Uh, we just finished up building on 120th and 1st Avenue, uh, 200,000 square foot, 179-unit project for Acacia, the nonprofit. Uh, so we do a lot of third-party GC work for nonprofits and uh, both affordable and supportive housing providers. And we also joint venture uh, with them as co-developers, and we do our own uh, development as well throughout the city. This project on 138th Street and 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, um, this project goes back uh, a while, and uh, this was part of the lower concourse rezoning, so this is actually an inclusionary housing project. It is 100% affordable, but most of our projects are mixed income. Uh, we don't really believe in just congregating everybody as low income, so we have a mix of populations, as you can see here, uh, up to 90% of AMI. Uh, we, we did get some funding from the state as well, and so we use this project as an example uh, just because of the diversity and the financing. Um, 
Again, this is in Mott Haven on 138th and 3rd Avenue in the South Bronx. Uh, it's about a 130,000 square foot building. It was 96 apartments. We have ground floor retail. Uh, we ended up having to do ground floor, uh, excuse me, underground parking. That was before the zoning change. We kind of got caught in that whole dynamic, which I wish we didn't because we had a lot of challenges here. Uh, the subway line <laughs> runs uh, right against our site, we have a line of influence, which if you know what that is with the MTA, it's extremely challenging, which they tried to force us to build the secant wall, uh, which we did not. Um, and it, it was a brownfield site as well, and the adjacent buildings all started to fall down as we built. Uh, we actually had to purchase 2557 Third Avenue uh, because of the poor condition of that building, and that landlord was pretty uncooperative. Um, so th there was a lot of challenges here, and just to kind of, and I think just talking in general about affordable housing and trying to build for this really underserved population in these really underserved communities, at the end of the day, it's still a real estate transaction, it's still a construction job, and there's still all of those traditional variables that you have that you have to deal with, as well as sort of navigating the complexity of affordable housing in New York City um, with the programs and the agencies and the local politics, the city politics, the state politics, and also the federal politics, which all kind of plays in. Um, so I'll stay here and just talk generally. So this was a 4% tax exempt bond deal. And so there's three bond issuing agencies in the state of New York. You have the New York City Housing Development Corporation, which is focused on New York City. You have HCR, the Homes and Community Renewal, which does projects throughout the state as well as the city. And then there's DASNY, the Dormitory Authority of the State of New York, which focuses on upstate and very specific projects. But they do a lot of supportive housing. Uh, we've done a lot of projects that we've built and co-developed where DASNY has issued bonds and the Office of Mental Health participates with capital programs. Uh, there's always going to be a traditional bank involved. They're going to issue a letter of credit on these tax-exempt bond deals. So, uh, so there's two types of tax credit deals, and let me just take a step back. Tax credits were started in uh, the 1986 with the Tax Reform Act. It's been the most successful program to actually generate equity into affordable housing projects. Um, and it has really been the main driver to maintain affordable housing. Uh, banks, insurance companies, corporations are required to fulfill community reinvestment acts. That community reinvestment act was about 1977, approximately. People weren't really meeting their CRA needs, so the uh, government created this section 42 in the Internal Revenue Code to incentivize corporations and banks to invest in affordable housing and to take the deduction um, and to take that right off while investing this equity. And so uh, you have tax, tax credit syndicators are uh, essentially an investment bank that is raising funds from banks and insurance companies on the upper tier. And then you have the real estate developers on the lower tier with the project and the syndicator matches the two and monetizes this credit that's awarded by the housing agency to the developer. Um, I don't want to get too involved into the nuance of it. Um, I'd say that the tax credit market is anywhere from 10 to $15 billion nationally. Uh, there's about $3 billion of tax credit equity in New York City, about $3 billion in California, the two biggest markets, and then the rest of the country. Um, that's definitely inched up over the years. 
so you have this 4% as of right tax credit. When I say as of right, if you're issued tax exempt bonds, those tax credits come as of right with those bonds. Then there's a separate competitive 9% tax credit process, which is very competitive and is, uh, and is scored accordingly. Uh, and there's a very finite amount. So these credits are based on a, a per, uh, per person, per capita, uh, of each state, and that's how they're allocated. Uh, so that's why New York and California obviously get the most amount of tax credits. Um, and this is the best way that these banks and insurance companies and corporations can fulfill their Community Reinvestment Act. And so one of the regulators is the Office of Comptroller and Currency. Every three years, they're gonna rate a bank on how well they fulfilled their CRA need, and they're gonna look at what investments they, they've made, and there's a lot of different criteria in scoring. Um, in these transactions, which I'll skip to, yes, please. Yeah, no. And that's why we actually picked this project. We actually were able to get $4 million of Department of Justice settlement funds from Bank of America. So, so yes, we were actually a beneficiary because a lot of the money that they paid in settlement funds, it, it was like, where is it going? And so a portion of that went into a bunch of affordable housing projects that had gaps in their, in their budgets. So definitely, I was, I was going to get to that, but I, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. No, thank you. Save the questions for the end. <laughs> um, so where was I and what was I doing? I was going to go and talk about the, um, the capital stack. I was talking about tax credit equity. What I was going to say is that tax credit equity, if you look at here in the permanent sources, uh, the LIHTC, the Class A investor, is about uh, $15 million here. So you can see percent of the total is about 30. It was a, bit, a little bit lower here. Um, but typically it's going to be anywhere from call it 30 to 50% of your entire, entire capital stack. So that's why you can, that's why I say the lie tech equity is the largest driver of affordable housing. Keep going. So this started back in 1986. I mean, this is sort of irrelevant of, of Trump. Just to be clear, the LIHTC equity. And so, so I don't know if people know about year 15 issues. Thanks so much. I'm having some trouble there. Um, so, and I think some of the stuff that Jeremiah had mentioned about projects coming out of compliance, rent stabilization, buildings that are just falling out of compliance, Mitchell Lama, the regulatory agreements are, are expiring. Um, so the first real tax credit projects that utilize LIHTC, low-income low housing tax credits, um, were in the late 90s. And the housing agencies didn't realize, they said, oh, okay, we're going to create this credit. It's a 10-year credit with a five-year hold. So it's a 15-year period. At the end of those 15 years, what happens? Those projects just, the landlords can put them back into the market rate pool and we lose that affordable housing. So in the, in the early 90s, the housing agencies woke up and said, oh, okay, the federal government didn't take it all the way through. 
no surprise, they didn't think it all the way through. Um, and so th what happened was they created regulatory agreements and extended use agreements uh, for these projects. So there's a 15 year hold and then you have an additional 30 years, which can be 60 years, it can be in perpetuity. And actually like on a 9% tax credit application, which is a competitive process, you can get additional points for how long your affordability period is. Um, but there were, um, when I was in grad school, uh, which was 2005, when I graduated, I wrote a thesis on the year 15 issues, because in 2005 was when a lot of affordable housing tax credit units, the first generation of those projects were coming offline, and they were all, they didn't have regulatory agreements. And so there was millions of units that actually came offline in 2005. It was, it was a pretty big uh, crisis and issue, and it was about how do we keep these things affordable, how do we refinance, what's the financing mechanism to, to keep these things in the affordable housing stock. Um, and what it is is just doing a re-syndication of putting additional tax credits, doing a rehab, the useful life of a building and capital improvements are needed. Um, and, and so you can do a re-syndication, you can do acquisition rehabs, which is what you see on a lot of NYCHA campuses. You're seeing a lot of different uh, RAD projects, the rental assistance demonstration, that's sort of a separate thing, but it, it kind of falls into this um, acquisition, rehab, refinancing concept here. So, um, so let me, to stay with this, because Henry wanted me to really talk about what is affordable housing on a specific project and talk you through. And so I mentioned some of the issues with the 138th Street and 3rd Avenue project, which we just actually finished this project um, earlier this year. Uh, we got our TCO in July, where uh, we, we hit 90% occupancy in October, end of October. Um, and we, ha we do have ground floor tenants. We were looking to do a little bit more of a, uh, an upscale tenant, unfortunately. We ended up with a Dollar Tree, um, who's a credit-rated tenant, and is very helpful to us. Uh, and we hope in 10 years when their lease is done that they'll move on and we can hopefully put something else there. Uh, but it's a very challenging neighborhood, and it was something that we needed to help service the debt of all of this subsidy. Uh, so to go to the subsidy, um, so you can see the HDC first here. This is the construction sources I'm going to start with here. I'm going to run through these. I'm going to try and get through as much as I can. Um, I'm gonna stay here after, I'm open for questions. Henry can give you my contact information. I'm more than happy to talk further on this stuff. Um, so the HTC First Mortgage, again, this is a tax-exempt bond deal. So these are long. These are gonna be uh, both long and short-term bonds. So the bonds, 22.75 million, are issued. Now these bonds can be issued in a private placement, a bank can buy them, they can be issued in the open, and these are those sort of municipal securities that people are gonna hold in their you know, 401Ks and pension funds, and people buy these things. These are general municipal securities. Um, the default rate on these securities, I think, is less than 0.03, it has a very small default rate um, and so that's from HDC HDC has a second capital here right it's a subordinate piece of debt it was the the 5.78 million and this is part of a program right so this is one of the financing programs from the city which has a litany of programs I believe at the time that we closed this which is which was back in uh, 2015, this was the Low Income Affordable Marketplace program. It was called LAMP. Today that program is called ELLA under de Blasio, the Extremely Low Income LA program. Forget the last two there. Um, <laughs> and so the next piece here, again, as uh, the gentleman in the back pointed out, 
um, Department of Justice uh, settlement funds. We had we got four million dollars of that, which was great. This is part of the settlement that Bank of America, which was one of the uh, the naughty banks who uh, was doing some bad things, had to settle, and so we were lucky enough to get some of that money. Um, and then the ResoA funds. So these are money that you apply to the borough president and the city council. You can also apply to the speaker. So these funds came from the borough president, Ruben Diaz, and from uh, the councilwoman at the time, Melissa Mark Viverito, who was also the speaker, um, but came from her council office of 1.25 million, which was great uh, and really helped us at the time. And then the third mortgage you can see came from HPD, the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, which is the largest municipal housing agency in the country and has also a, a litany of uh, different types of programs. Um, and they are uh, a partner with, a, uh, with HDC. Um, HDC, HCR, and HPD have regular schedule calls uh, in order to coordinate all the closings because there's so many different funds. Uh, NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, uh, we will eventually get that money. Um, that is for meeting certain green standards. Uh, affordable housing in New York City has to meet the Enterprise Green Community Standard. It's the basic threshold. That's been around for about a decade at this point. Things seem to be go going towards a passive house standard, which we're actually uh, in process of pre-development uh, pre and construction on a couple passive houses. Uh, so like the whole lead gold thing is now going to this passive. So it's uh, interesting to see the, the change here. Uh, and then the building code is also coming up uh, on some of that stuff too. Uh, unfunded reserves, how am I doing on time? Okay. okay. I see you moving, I'm like, all right, I don't know. All right, so um, unfunded reserves are just reserves that we're not gonna use until we get to conversion. These are gonna be um, long-term operating reserves, so we're gonna put them into construction sources because we don't need them during construction. And then LIHTC equity. You're not gonna get much LIHTC equity during the construction period, right? These, the tax credit equity people wanna keep themselves at bay until you've done everything you had to do with the brownfield. And as you can see, there's obviously no brownfield equity in the deal. This is a class B investor. So the brownfield program is a great program in New York State. Uh, it's pretty generous. Uh, it's through the state uh, Department of Environmental Conservation and then New York State Department of Treasury will either issue you a check or if you have state tax liability, it'll be offset. Um, and and so that's why you have the class A and class B because it is technically equity into the deal. Um, and then the last piece here is the deferred developer's fee. We didn't get paid any developer fee at the construction loan closing. Um, so typically you, you try to negotiate to get some of that at the closing, but as you can see by the Department of Justice funds, this was a tight deal, this was hard to get financed. So uh, here we go to the permanent period, 7.3 million, those are the long-term bonds. So we paid down the other short-term bonds, the approximately $15.9 million of short-term bonds uh, that are outstanding for three years, which we need to prepay in March 1st, 2019, and then we're gonna have 7.3 million of long-term bonds, 30-year bonds, which will be in somebody's portfolio in this room. Um, the 5.7 HDC second, that's a long-term, that's 33 years, three years construction, and then the 30 years outstanding. DOJ will be in there for long-term, Resaway as well, HPD too. There's the nice sort of money that will come in once we meet some of our certifications. I forget what this is, 100, if you do this on a per unit basis, right, $1,200, that's what you get with the incentive through New York State Energy Research Development Authority. And then the New York State um, was, uh, was nice enough to give us some Homes for Working Families funds here, and that'll come in at the loan conversion when we take out the construction loan. And there's the full amount of the tax credit equity uh, that we received. I, I, I'm kind of blanking on what it was on a dollar per credit. I think we got about a dollar ten 
at the time of this deal. Now, the brownfield credit equity that you see, the $1.93 million, that was what we needed to make the deal work. We're hoping that we can get back all of the money that we had to put in out of pocket because of all the issues that we experienced due to the uh, ground conditions. Uh, but the brown... So Brownfield Credit is cleaning up the contamination. This used to be a gas station and a Kentucky Fried Chicken, so there was a grease from both places in the ground. And um, by cleaning that up, there's two different components to this credit. There's a site preparation credit component, there's a tangible property credit component. So the site prep credit component you get once you've actually cleaned up the property and you finish the foundation, DEC, Department of Environmental Conservation on Issue Certificate, and then you will file with Treasury, you will file with Treasury to get that back, that first piece. Uh, we will be filing our second piece because we got our TCO in 2018. We'll file in 2019, maybe in 2021 we'll see that money. That money could end up being $7 million. Okay, so that's a, I'm gonna stop you for a second. I, I think it's a great point. I think to just highlight is that there's a lot of guarantees and financial covenants that were required as a, as a developer to maintain during this whole construction and permanent period. So I have certain liquidity and net worth covenants that I have to maintain on my balance sheet. So it's, it's, it's great that I can see this windfall, but it's also I've locked up millions of dollars during this entire period in order to realize some of these benefits. We also had about $2 million of cost overruns above the hard cost and the hard cost contingency, which you don't really anticipate. So I think there's a lot of risk because I also am not going to see most of that $7 million until 2022. I bought this land in 2009. Okay, so just to give you an idea of, of when you purchase to when you buy, it took us five years from purchase of land to get into a construction loan closing and getting into the ground. So these are just different factors as, you know, trying to become a developer, these are things to just keep in mind. And, and, not, and these are just challenges and obstacles, things that you can overcome. But um, yeah, and this is what, you know, I, this is a deal that I thought was really interesting because of the litany of, so there's about 10 different sources in here. I've worked on deals that we have 15 different sources. So you're really cobbling everything together and it's, it's you know, are you willing to take the risk of the brownfield? Are you not? There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot into that. And then you can see the deferred developer fee of that three and a half million dollars of developer fee, I'm deferring 2.1 of that long term, and I'll get that back over the 15-year credit period through cash flow. At the end of 15 years, if it's not paid back, that's a taxable event. I'm going to have to make a loan to myself, to the project, in order to pay down whatever hasn't been paid back. Um, and so just so you can see how much the acquisition, the acquisition was actually about three and a half million dollars at that time was about $32, $35 a buildable foot. Now in Bronx, it's $50 in North. People are asking for $75 in this neighborhood. 
Um, the acquisition cost, uh, the other half a million was about, was uh, different types of carry costs, insurance, taxes, interest. Uh, the construction cost at 31.1 was actually 29.5 in a contract. Um, so this includes, um, this includes contingency in there, and then there's the soft cost, all of your interest and financing costs, and your architect and engineer and controlled inspections. I had an inspector from the Department of Environmental Conservation, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, Housing Preservation and Development, the Homes and Community Renewal, and um, I'm leaving, and my own third-party controlled inspector. I had to pay five controlled inspectors. My controlled inspections were probably uh, 1.5 to $2 million on this project. Um, okay, and so just to go back to the structuring here, when you structure these projects, um, in New York State, we utilize these housing development fund corporations. So you can see here on your left-hand side the, um, the housing development fund corporation, which is actually owned by the New York City Partnership, um, which is a, uh, a nonprofit organization that partners with for-profits to act as a vehicle in order for us to, uh, to be eligible for the mortgage recording tax, the transfer tax, and sales tax on construction materials. Uh, without those incentives, these projects cannot work. The mortgage, mortgage tax, recording tax, and transfer tax are through the roof uh, in New York City. Um, and so you, and this is definitely, again, this is a New York, this is a New York State, New York City-centric thing outside of uh, New York. This does not exist. This is part of the real property tax law. Uh, and what you do is you bifurcate out the fee interest in the title. And so we have the beneficial interest, the East 138th Street LLC, and through a nominee agreement, which is just a legal document, you bifurcate out the fee interest, which is held with the HDFC uh, and is owned by a nonprofit. And that needs to be owned 50% by a nonprofit. In this case, they own 100%. Um, and then, so that's the left of the diagram, and then on the right you can see we have the HDFC through the East 138th Street Partners is owning, right, 50-50 of this top entity at the top tier, the East 138th Street LLC, which is the beneficial owner, they are the borrower. And then on the right, you can see UBC 138th, which is us, Urban Builders Collaborative. We have the 99.98 and then Bank of America, who was the, both the debt provider through a letter of credit on the bonds and also the direct equity investor, also with the DOJ loan, they only owned 0.01 during construction because they said, we don't want to be part of your regime until you finish all of the brownfield. And then when we get to the permanent, we assign that interest to the bank, the UBC 138, 99.998. We give it to them, 99.99, and we own 0.01 of this project. This is a structuring thing that's required by the Internal Revenue Code per Section 42 in order for them to take all of the loss elements. That is the low-income housing tax credit, which is a 10-year credit with an additional five-year hold, and then all of the loss elements, the amortization and depreciation. That all gets sold to the tax credit investor. We negotiate and say, how much per credit are you gonna give me? Um, and that is a structure and financing of an affordable housing project, and I'll stop there. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Matthew. That was uh, fantastic.
so uh, now we're going to zoning impact on East Harlem's affordable housing. Uh, George James is going to come up. Uh, thank you, George. And I thought zoning was complicated. Holy cow, that was great, Matt, thank you. Um, but I am, I'm humbled. Um, okay, so uh, as you may have heard, uh, East Harlem went through a rezoning process. Um, it was finalized a year ago. Um, the map that you see on the screen shows the areas of East Harlem that were rezoned during this process. Generally speaking, um, on the avenues, second, Third, Lexington, and Park, and a small bit of Madison Avenue, um, from 105th uh, at its lowest to a 132nd at its highest. Um, in most places, it significantly increased density. Um, and by significantly increasing density in these areas on 2nd Avenue, 3rd Avenue, Lexington, and Park, um, what happens is you have something called mandatory inclusionary housing. Uh, mandatory inclusionary housing is the, this administration's um, policy to attach affordable housing to zoning. So the way it works is that if you, do, if you have a significant increase in density, in residential density, um, mandatory inclusionary housing attaches to it, and uh, when you build, uh, housing, you have to have permanently affordable housing, and the housing is attached to the, the, um, the, the restriction is attached to a deed restriction, so it's permanent. Um, that wasn't the only piece of this, though. Um, the, the, there's a number, it's a special district, and so there are a number of things written into the zoning that are very complicated and very quirky that exist nowhere else in New York, and it's... It, <laughs> It, I don't think it needed to be this complicated, but it ended up being very, very complicated. Um, you have, like, for instance, I'm just going to, you have R10 districts that mean different things depending on where you are. There are districts that have the same name but have different densities and different height restrictions. And so you have to actually read the text and look at a map to see what rules you have to follow. Um, this is a graphic that was prepared during the, uh, the rezoning process to try to explain um, what the rezoning meant. Um, on, the, on your left um, is the existing, thank you, um, is, is essentially what the existing zoning would allow along Park Avenue. Um, along Park Avenue where it was rezoned, it was either an M district where it allowed low density manufacturing buildings or gas stations or things like that, um, or a medium density apartment house building uh, district, which are the, the massing models you see on the left-hand side. Um, the community board, or the, uh, the East Harlem Neighborhood Plan uh, group, recommended in the middle um, a, an R9, um, which would allow for buildings uh, 15 to 18 stories. And the idea was, was that you would have non-residential in the base of the building so that you could get the residential portions over the tracks because in this part of Park Avenue, you have the big viaduct. And the colors meant the brown areas were the, essentially the additional bulk, the up zoning that would, that would be allowed, and the hatched areas was the amount that would be affordable, right? So you, you, you are increasing density, but a bunch of that density would be permanently affordable housing. Um, the Department of City Planning came back with a, 
the one on the right. Um, and, and essentially what came out after a negotiation is something kind of in the middle. Um, so not as dense as what um, DCP had proposed, uh, but denser than what the um, East Harlem neighborhood plan recommended. Um, but it's dense. It, it's, it's definitely dense. This is a, uh, a rendering um, put out by Cushman and Wakefield uh, for an area along 3rd Avenue in the northern part of 3rd Avenue um, in the, uh, I think at 124th Street or 123rd Street. Um, and it, you can see the, the, what's allowed there under the current zoning compared to what's there right now. I mean, what's there right now is also considerably underbuilt. Um, so you're not supposed to read this, uh, but the point of, of bringing this up is that the city has invested a lot in this rezoning. Um, this is the first multi-block mandatory inclusionary housing area in Manhattan. Um, there were two or three other sites before this. Um, and the administration has a lot riding on the mandatory inclusionary housing program. And so what they've done is they've supported the rezoning with these points of agreement. What, what does that mean? Essentially to get the, uh, the council member to support a rezoning, um, the city promises all these investments and writes them down. It's 20 pages long. There's 57 points of agreement, agreement where they essentially put money or services or, or improvements into the neighborhood to support the rezoning. And there are 57 of these points of agreement. Some are tiny, but some are significant. Um, and it's essentially a, a commitment that the, uh, the city has made to support it, um, the change that's coming to East Harlem. The mandatory in inclusionary housing affordability uh, requirements. And this is written into the zoning. Um, you have to do either option one or option three. Um, option one is 25% uh, of the units uh, in new developments must be affordable at 60% of the AMI. Or you can do 20% affordable at 40% of AMI. Um, and, they, and if you do an, you still have the offsite. So one of the complaints has always been is that, is that you could do these, these units somewhere else, not in the building. But if you do that, there's a lot of penalties. You have to do 5% more units. And one of the things that um, MIH does is it gives you a bigger building envelope. So you can have um, a taller building. Um, you could fit your, uh, your, your units in a larger envelope. So if you, and if you do your affordable housing offsite, um, you have to do a more constrained envelope. Um, HPD doesn't subsidize these units, or at least they haven't been yet. Um, if they are a requirement of the zoning and you're doing the minimum, um, HPD is not going to give you a subsidy for it. Um, and, but they will give you subsidies for 100% affordable, but not the, the, the part that's attached to the zoning. And then the other piece of this um, is the HPD East Harlem Housing Plan. This is their first housing plan for a neighborhood. And again, this is essentially, um, if you read this, it will get into how HPD will be directing money into East, East Harlem to, to subsidize affordable housing. And so it's, a, it's, it's this, along with the points of agreement, is you know, the city really stepping up and saying, well, you know, we need to make improvements to East Harlem to support the rezoning. Um, that's all I have, and happy to take questions. Thank you so much. <clears throat>
So I'm not just going to sit there and look pretty in the corner. I have to ask you guys a couple of questions. Um, in terms of uh, Jeremiah, when you were talking about the mayor's affordable housing plan to develop 300,000 new units you know, for the future, um, apparently 180,000 of those are already existing, correct? So he has to preserve those and cut new deals with developers and then build 120,000 additional units for those, right? Right. So what does that mean for the future of his plan and is it actually viable in terms of getting those landlords not to opt out when market, going market rate is so much more attractive we can, can charge 20% as an increase for the vacancy penalties and everything else? Uh, so, right now, I, I mean, I can probably defer a little bit to demand. I'm not sure about how the financing works for this, but um, I think right now we do see a, that is always the problem, the question that we have here is uh, what qualifies, I think there's been some pushback over what qualifies as a preserved uh, unit um, there that question is an open one and doesn't meet deeply affordable requirements or needs in the community. Um, I also think that we're often, this is where, it, hello, all right, so this is where it also gets into, I think, into Matt's land here, because we're often talking about what subsidies are needed and what can the government do to incentivize that because the, the market uh, forces are very much attractive and at play here. Um, that is exactly as you talked about, you know, is more attractive, especially when we're talking about something like East Harlem and the rezoning, there's going to be increased displacement pressures um, in, in this neighborhood and folks are going to, uh, you know, see a lot of pressure placed on them, even rent stabilized tenants in order to for landlords to take advantage of uh, vacancy bonuses that currently uh, exist. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, this question is for you as a developer. Uh, what does the future of NYCHA look like with the ballooning deferred maintenance deficits and the sale of, sale of parcels to private developers? Uh, so NYCHA's a really hard um, issue to tackle. I think they're actually starting to do that, which is which is encouraging. Um, actually, under Bloomberg, he had actually issued the first RFEI, the Request for Expressions of Interest, and he had there was actually a bunch of different um, sites. Uh, some Washington houses what was one of them in East Harlem that was up on the block about what would you do, developers make a uh, submit a proposal. And we had actually submitted a proposal um, as a joint venture with a couple other developers to. Um, do a rental assistance uh, demonstration and rehab the entire campus, as well as building some uh, some new buildings on the on the vacant land. So I mean, now we're in the De Blasio administration, and that's actually happening. And it's great to see that some of these RFPs have been issued because there is an acquisition price that that the the cost of that acquisition, which is being put into the RFP, and these developers are winning them. Uh, we actually were part of a joint venture with two nonprofits, and we won a NYCHA Next Generation RFP out on Sumner Houses um, in Brooklyn. 
it, uh, that's part of the uh, scoring, right? So that acquisition is going to go, that acquisition goes right into the new development. Um, so it, it's a step in the right direction. Is it going to cure all of the ills? No. Um, is the RAD program going to cure all the ills? It, it's not. And it, I, I agree, but it is, again, it's a, it's a step. And I, I don't think it's a baby step. I think it's a real step forward um, because by going into a, a rental assistance demonstration program, the existing tenants get to remain in place and their rents do not have to change. Okay? That's what RAD is. The tenants stay and the rents don't change. And the way that and there's subsidy that comes in, there's additional rental subsidy comes in, which is allows the developer to size additional debt, which they can use to rehab the apartments. So based on the survey, on the tenant surveys of the RAD projects that have been done so far, they've been positive, okay? We were not part of any of those. I'm just talking about the information that I have uh, my, the inside information from developers. We've talked with some of the tenant reps and associations, and it seems like it's a positive step, and it is, and it is a step forward. Um, I'm not sure where we're going to get this other money, but I think that using a lot of these vacant parcels um, is is a way to uh, to tackle the issue. Uh, I, I think it's a step forward. I think that has been, and and please, yeah, George, wants yeah, I, I would, I, yeah, I, this is. I have opinions about this, um, and the, uh, it's really important. The NYCHA infill program, it's really, it's really important. And I, I think if you look at NextGen NYCHA, and they have an infill plan in NextGen NYCHA for, for East River houses. Um, and if you look at it, it's actually a beautifully designed plan. It's comprehensive, um, and it was, they had a, a, KPF did the plan for it. It was really, something that was well considered. And so many of the actual next-gen NYCHA um, uh, infill proposals have nothing to do with that plan. Um, they are treated as excess real estate. And, and they just plop in a huge building in the middle of a, an existing campus. And there's no design, there's no, there's, and, and, it, and I, I was just yesterday um, speaking to Community Board 8 about the infill uh, plan for Holmes Towers on 92nd Street. And there, they're plopping a 500-foot building in the, on, on the campus within three feet of the street line, which is like, we don't do that in New York. It's actually, it's not legal. And they're going to use a mayoral zoning override to essentially say, well, there's a public purpose here, so we don't have to follow zoning. Um, Um, you know, if they had done a plan that treated the campus as a campus, um, that it that um, actually uh, was an integrated plan as opposed to excess real estate, I mean, you know, it's not excess real estate. There's a playground on it. Um, Across the street, there is a there is a similar sized tower that was built years ago. Just. Absolutely, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's a plan. So, so, so hold, hold, hold on a second real quick. I just want to make sure, because we want to get through enough questions. 
for the public as well. But I think I think what George, if you I, I think my, just to wrap it up is that is that you could do it well or you can do it poorly, and 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 that's the that's the thing that I think is it, it's really easy to do it poorly. It's hard to do it well. All right, and and what's been planned for many of these is really the easy way, and it's been done poorly. And and I think and I think the importance, especially in East Harlem, especially here where there's so many of these these estates, it's really really important to do it well, not only for the the residents there, but for the entire community. So, Jeremiah, do you, did you want to say? It? Thank you. Yeah. Just a last thing, George said it really eloquently. I have uh, a lot of strong opinions on infill as well as somebody who represents low-income NYCHA residents, um, but George said it beautifully. Uh, but I will say also with respect to RAD, the mayor now is proposing to undergo RAD conversions on about 60,000 NYCHA units, which is about over one-third of the NYCHA housing stock of 176,000 units across the city. So right now we have just uh, very little to go on. I will say that Matt is right that I've also talked to sources at the borough president's office who say that uh, for now that residents do seem to be happy with the way RAD has worked because they've gotten a lot of the deferred maintenance needs met. However, I can also tell you that there was a lot of, there was a RAD roundtable and there were a lot of tenants advocates that were brought to the table because what we worry about here is an erosion of tenants' rights and public housing rights. So that's what we have to keep in mind. So right now, there, and, and to the credit of these advocates, a lot of protections were built in for this RAD building. So the, the public housing tenants retain the same rights that they have before pre-conversion. So they have the right to succession of the lease, they have a right to grievances, they have a, a right to remain in their apartments without rescreening, a right to permanent affordability at 30% income. So uh, it does, it, it, I just wanted to caution that whenever we're talking about infill, talking about RAD, that we always have to be looking at the and elevating the interests of the NYCHA residents. I just, the one thing I just want to add about RAD is it's a national program. So New York is competing with the rest of the country. And that's why de Blasio is saying this because there's, he's getting positive feedback enough that he wants to put himself out there because there are millions of public housing units that are all competing for the same pot of money. So, so real quick, thank, I, I just want to keep Sorry, things just, moving along, and this is something that personally, I, I just want to take a quick moment and aside. Our, our community board chair, uh, Nilsa Rama is here. If you could stand up, say hi um, real quick. Uh, she told me she didn't want to say anything real quick and she's observing, but we're just trying to get it. And we have other community board members who actually do live in NYCHA as well, live in affordable housing. Could you just raise your hands if you're a community board member, please? We are all here to serve. We are all part of a creating a holistic solution. And this is why we're having the dialogue. And I know we're running out of time, but I want everyone to keep in mind that we want to open up some questions to the public. But after we're done, this is where we need to network, exchange cards, and start creating solutions. So I want everyone to keep that in mind. Um, so I'm going to move on to the next question. And not to cut anyone off, because this is incredible information. And, this is, and we have students that were here. This is the next generation of leaders. So here's a big one. One word. 
Amazon. Amazon's headquarters master plan will be at the expense of, guess how many? 1,500 affordable housing units. I'm gonna ask the panel, what should be done to replace these units and add more going forward? Good question. Go. <laughs> George, I, this is your question, it's pretty, pretty good for you, shoot. I, just to be clear, I, it was. I, I think you're talking about the proposed development in Annabelle Basin, which it's not. It's not built yet, right? Those those were hypothetical of affordable housing units, and I think that actually wasn't quite 1,500. It was a, a mixed um, market rate um, and affordable project. But um, but I think your point is not the 1,500. It's the, your point is is that you're plopping down a huge number of high wage jobs in an area where it's going to bring people to live, it's going to increase rents, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. And, and as, far as, as far as solutions to that go, I'm actually going to defer. I mean, I, mean, I think Jeremiah may have, have more solutions uh, or, or Matt. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a huge policy question, right? It's a huge mm -hmm. policy question that's looking for a solution. Zoning is not going to solve that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Matt, Jeremiah, do you care to opine? <laughs> I, I, I think it's a very complex question, but I, I would go back to also, um, for me, a lot of, there's a lot of importance, again, to strengthening the rent stabilization laws. That is going to be one of the broadest protections to tenants. I, I focused a lot on low, very low, extremely low income households, but this is going to sweep north as over to the higher income band. So when we talk about moderate income folks, folks, I'm sure students here are no strangers to living two, three, sometimes four people in an apartment um, in order to make the rent. So those, it's gonna hit a lot of these income bands. So for me, uh, one of the priorities gotta be strengthening the rent stabilization laws. I agree with that. Uh, you know, Amazon is an 800 pound gorilla that's coming into our city, right? It's gonna bring a lot of jobs, a lot of high paying jobs. You know, all these subsidies that they're getting, they can use some of their reach and some of their leverage in order to be able to change some policy regarding infrastructure and affordable housing to be provided for their workforce. This is, this is the responsibility that corporate relocation specialists need to bring when they think about where they're gonna plop down their next headquarters. And this is affordable housing like healthcare provided to their employees should be considered a benefit to their employees. So next question, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> what does the Second Avenue subway mean for the future of East Harlem's affordability? It's coming. I mean, first, first it means eminent domain. There's some eminent domain that uh, has already, that we were, we were surprised. There's some uh, landowners in the area around 2nd Avenue uh, on, the, on the corner of, uh, of 2nd Avenue and 109th Street. On the east side of the street, there's about four brownstones and six, and they're taking them. Right, they're taking them, they're demolishing, they're going to put a substation there. Uh, which is required for them. Auxiliary tower, substation, some apparatus to assist in the venting and use of the, of the subway. So I think, they, there's like, I think there's different steps that you're going to see. So it's not going to just happen at once, but you're going to start, you've already started to see eminent domain. It's already happened. Yep. They've already started to acquire and they're starting to map it out. Um, and I think you're going to see the same thing that happened down below with 
the difficulty of retailers being able to survive under heavy scaffolding and heavy construction for years. So I think you're gonna see a couple different stages. Um, and I'm hopeful that a lot of the points of agreement with the rezoning took into account the Second Avenue subway. And a lot of the mandatory inclusionary housing is, is hopefully gonna offset. I'm not sure how much, but I know that that was part, because I, I was at, I was at a, I'd say a handful of those meetings. I know I, <laughs> you lived and breathed it for a long time, and, um, but that was yeah. part of it. Right, it, it was. And a um, couple of things to say about this. Um, number one is there's going to be more displacement on this phase than there was in the last phase, um, a lot more. Um, and it's something that it's disclosed in the EIS, um, and there are a number of, a number of buildings. And, and, you know, in theory, you know, they have a tenant, um, a tenant plan, a tenant relocation plan. Um, but the thing is, it's based upon the, the first phase. And the first phase, they didn't have very many, right? And so I, I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. Um, and I think there's a role for the community board to play to try to, like, make certain that the MTA lives up to their, to their um, uh, obligations. Thank you. Um, the zoning does take into account the Second Avenue subway. Um, and the building envelopes for the substation areas are huge. And the idea is, is, that, is that you have this you know, 10 story or 14 story um, auxiliary uh, station in different places, and then you could build a building on top of that. Um, and the MTA has taken this land um, and, they don't, and they're gonna build their substation, but what's gonna happen to it after that? And I think there's, there's really a, an opportunity for advocates within the community to say that, you know, maybe the MTA should be putting that toward affordable housing, you know, getting it to an affordable housing developer to develop housing integrated with their facilities, you know, designed with their facilities in mind. Um, the zoning is it's designed to fit that. The zoning is, is crafted to do exactly that. But right now, I don't think there's any obligation. I don't think there's any obligation um, to provide it to affordable housing or to use it for anything other than what they're taking it for. However, there's a real opportunity there to do more with it. Thank you. Uh, we're going to open up the program now to four questions from the public. We got to ask them four. We got to, we're running out of time here. So Xavier, somebody raise your hand, whoever wants to ask a question. Oh, right here behind you. Daryl Williams. Real quick, just make sure you as we say, land your jet quickly so the question can be asked and then we can get an answer and move from, thank you. Um, for the uh, question on the zoning and then on developers and the, the financing, how do you consider the infrastructure in the community? So the subway platforms get crowded at peak hours. Does the zoning take that into account? And then does the developer, I know uh, location, 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 near the subway is better, but you can't even get on the thing during certain hours. Right, so in the rezoning, there is an environmental review, and during the environmental review, they look at how many new people are gonna be there and what the traffic's gonna be like or the, and the travel is gonna be like, and they actually look at the subway platforms and the kind of um, expected rushes they're gonna have, and, and if there are impacts, according to the environmental review, um, they're supposed to mitigate them. However, you know, if the environmental review doesn't match reality, they don't have to mitigate them, right? You know, if they show no impact in the environmental review and then there's real impact on the road, they're off the hook. 
Um, and essentially, you know, the MTA or whomever needs to deal with it at the time. So in theory, it has been studied and will be mitigated to the maximum extent practicable. And in fact, the, the, the points of agreement though, I mean, there are major investments to, uh, into the area outlined in the points of agreement to help ameliorate some of this. But I'm sure that there will be things where you go, my gosh, it didn't used to be this way. Um, and that's the nature of increasing density. Thank you. Next person. Xavier in the front. I who should I go to? Mar Mar Thank you. Uh, she had her hand. Hi, so I wanted to know from each of you, what impact do you think investment um, capital into uh, buildings will be in the future. So a lot of these deals that are coming through, you're using additional funds to actually kind of balance out what's coming down the pipeline for affordable housing. So I wanted to know, I guess from each of you, where do you see that or how big of an impact will that be going forward in actually building true affordable housing? Um, so I, you're asking the question is um, funds, the most impact, the funds that are going to come in that are going to be the most impactful going forward? Well, you're right. I, I think right now the trendy thing is this opportunity yeah. zone, which was recently passed, which we're still trying to figure out the requirements in the zone. It, it, but the zones themselves, if you look at the district, it's very interesting because they're in a lot of high-income high, uh, areas. Um, so that's sort of the first question. The second question is a lot of the rules and, res and, and restrictions. And I, I, we, we own a lot of property in opportunity zones, but we purchased them before the cutoff, so I don't even know that we can even access those funds. So I think it's, it's still kind of being determined, but I, I mean, really, opportunity zones are supposed to be generating $100 million nationally over 10 years, a billion dollars in, you know, over the next decade in these uh, opportunity zones, but I think it's to be seen how the federal statute is gonna play with each individual state statute, which has to now adjust their legislation to fit into the box of this federal legislation for these zones. So, um, I, you know, private equity coming into the market, I think they tried that, the market crashed, and now they're out. <laughs> so that happened already. Mm -hmm. uh, in 20, you know, the global financial crisis, 20, 2007, 2008, you had a lot of private equity companies coming in and buying Mitchell Lama Section 8 buildings and pushing people out. And that's why we are now at this point where you have these rate rent stabilization laws which have been coming forward to prevent that from happening again. And I think a lot of them got burned. Uh, so, but you know, the, you are seeing venture capital and private equity come into the market because it's, you know, look at your different asset classes. Am I gonna go into treasuries? Am I gonna go, you know, if you're talking about an investment, what am I gonna go into? What's safe? What's secure? Um, and, and so you do, you know, affordable housing is becoming an asset class that is, uh, is a real investment. It's like a bond. Uh, you know, you're going to get that 5 6% return and at a, at a worst case, a 3%, you know, but you're going to beat treasuries. So uh, you are seeing these other, you know, types of sources, like you mentioned, uh, coming in. Yeah, I, the only thing I would say is that, is that we all need to pay attention to opportunity zones. The, the rules were just released, what, about six weeks ago, something like that. Yeah, but the boundaries have been around for several months now. And, and 
the incentives in theory, if it all works out, are really high. And so you might see a lot of money going into these opportunity zone funds looking for a place to go. And whenever you have a lot of money chasing a limited inventory, prices tend to go up. Um, and so it's, it, there's, it's something that we really, there's a lot of unknowns, but it's something to actually pay very close attention to. And, and let me just say, some of the projects that we have that are opportunity zones, we're talking to some of these funds that want to invest in these projects, but the returns they're looking for are opportunity funds, meaning 15, 20%. These are projects that are gonna serve affordable housing. These are in underserved neighborhoods. That's not the return that's gonna get generated. So there's a really big gap in learning curve that these opportunity fund investors, which are not in the affordable world, are going to have to get over. And how fast can they get over that before the, the clock stops ticking and you can't make that investment anymore? Uh, we're gonna to go to the next question, Xavier, the lady behind. Oh, sorry, the gentleman next to her had a question right here. <coughs> Yeah, uh, I, this is my first time seeing the new East Harlem zoning. I've one observation and one sort of question. The one observation, and I understand that the community wanted lower density, but it's, it's sort of striking from what I could see of the map, and I put my glasses on to read it. There's very little R10 equivalent uh, on the map that you showed. Whereas if you go any further south on this island, virtually all the avenues are R10 equivalents to 100 feet off the avenue. So there's not a lot of incentive for increased density here. The other thing I was wondering about is effectively the NYCHA building stock is the only other permanently protected building stock in the city other than landmarks. And in zoning, there are special mechanisms for transferring development rights from landmarks that aren't permitted for ordinary properties. And it seems like it might have been a good idea to create some of those mechanisms for the NYCHA properties so that you didn't get into this issue with someone building a 500 foot tall building <clears throat> on one of the existing campuses. I don't know if that was ever discussed, if you're familiar with it, George. Um, there, okay, so your first, point first, is that um, most of Park Avenue is an R10 equivalent, but there are some R9s, it's, it's split. But um, part of third is, but second is R9, most of third is R9. Um, and the idea there was that you, they wanted to have the minimum upzoning necessary to trigger mandatory inclusionary housing. It was all about development. It, development is already happening here. How do we get affordable housing out of it? You do the minimum necessary to trigger MIH in the areas that were already residential. Park Avenue, remember most of Park Avenue was, was a two FAR manufacturing district, right? Or a C8 district. And so going from that, it's essentially zero to a 12 FAR is a really significant increase and a significant change along Park Avenue. All right, um, and as far as the, uh, innovative zoning solutions like um, what you've mentioned with NYCHA, that was not mentioned with NYCHA. NYCHA infill was studied uh, at, at great length, um, but that was not uh, studied. However, there was something called a, um, a garden district where uh, community gardens would be able to transfer their development rights to other, um, other properties so they could be preserved as community gardens. That was a recommendation in the East Harlem rec uh, community plan went to the Department of City Planning, it never came out. 
Thank you. We have time for one more question because I think people are thirsty. Oh, <laughs> Veronica. Um, well, nonprofits act as as developers. I, I don't think it makes a difference if you're a for-profit or nonprofit doing uh, doing it. I think that people there there's sort of two sides to that. People say, but what percentage of developers are there? It's a it's a pretty small group of people who have who have dedicated themselves. I I'd say I'd say that there's a, a handful of sort of large scale, and then uh, HPD has created some incubation programs to get some smaller. Uh, MWBE developers into the fold and into the mix, and um, but we're yeah we're a small group. I mean, what can you do to support? I, I, supporting us is basically supporting the nonprofits that do the work that we joint venture with, that we build for, uh, and helping them with their social service programs. I think a lot of the all of the housing now is required to put uh, referrals from Department of Homeless Services because of the crisis of the of the homeless population, and. It's very difficult because as a, as a developer, you're required to put this population in, but you're not really given any support money, support operating money to engage a full-time social worker, which is needed. I mean, these individuals need real help to transition and become a, a part of society again. And I think that when you ask about what you can do to support, I mean, that would be my, my recommendation. I, I have, uh, you know, there's the Supportive Housing Network of New York is the advocacy group for all the supportive nonprofits. I'd say look at that, look at some of the nonprofits there and give to them, and, and they all do, they do, you know, God's work, and, and, okay. and it's great stuff. I, I always encourage uh, people who want to get involved to get involved in their community board. I think uh, that's where <laughs> I, I, I think that's like where the rubber meets the road for, Careful for local land use for. issues. <laughs> I'm gonna allow. Uh, so, through some, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I go ahead, Jeremiah. Sorry, I didn't mean to on interrupt. The, on the NYCHA infill, um, I think the only example I know of Euler process being triggered for these infill is Wyckoff Gardens in Brooklyn, and I think that's because what was proposed would require a zoning change. Uh, now the city takes a position that it doesn't have to, it doesn't trigger ULERP and with these other infill projects. I can tell you that there are a lot of legal advocates that are questioning based on the law. So, you know, uh, wait for that chapter possibly to unfold. But there are advocates who believe that any NYCHA infill should trigger the ULERP process, which would then allow us to have community input and it would have, it would go through our community boards. Uh, before moving forward. Part, part of the reason why the transferable development air rights wasn't really contemplated because it just would have triggered so many other things. And Okay, real quick, I've um, been able to ask permission. No, um, one more question. Just There's so many brilliant minds. I've, she's had her hand up the entire time, as some of us have, but I just want to land this quickly and then have everyone network and talk and keep in mind as we give our closing remarks, we want to exchange information so we can actually be productive at the end of this. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to get to everyone. Um, I don't have a question, but I hear on the panel about affordable housing. I'm concerned about affordable to who in East Harlem. That's my 
question because East Harlem, based on our AMI and the affordability, that's low income. And no one on this panel has said anything about low income housing. Y'all have said affordable. But unfortunately, it's not affordable to East Harlem residents. So you're putting these uh, buildings and these private developers are coming into our home, placing these uh, ap apartments, these beautiful buildings that we would not be able to live in because of the affordability. So again, we have to factor in some of these apartments should be utilized for low income and not affordable housing. So real quick to kind of sum that up in the, the question of affordable for who, I think there's worth a little applause on that one right there. Um, which is what the opening remarks we were all trying to hit. And I, I'd like the panel just to quickly answer that question because this is something at the community board we are addressing, which is we are talking about the lower socioeconomic rungs. This is what has been neglected. So please panel, if you could land the I mean, the answers. example that the project, the 138th Street, we do have um, individuals um, making way below the poverty line all the way up to 90. So in, in the way these housing programs work, um, you are required to put in 20% of AMI, 30% of AMI, which are individuals making $15,000 a year and $15,000, $20,000 a year. Is it enough? No, I agree with you. But there are, they are trying to put them in. It's just, it's all a numbers game. How do we make it work? What subsidies out there? Um, but, but the city is doing its best through zoning, through the financing programs. The city is revising its term sheets again. They're trying to increase the homeless set-aside requirement in all these buildings. They're trying to increase the lower affordability. They passed income averaging, which is something new, which we can now skew the rents much lower, but then you also have to have higher rents to offset it. But before, everything had to be at 60% of area median income and below. So now you can go up to 70 and 80% of AMI which allows you to go down to 10 and 20%. And then you can average it to get to that 60% AMI, which is the section 42 LIHTC requirement. So. You're 100% right. I think the city's doing its best to increase uh, can, that. Can I just say just one second? I think the city could actually do a little better. Um, I mean, I, I think like I, uh, the, you know, like for instance, in the NYCHA on the Holmes Houses one and the RFP, they can do 60% of AMI or they could do the ELLA program, but it's up to them. Why is it up to them, right? Why is it up to the developer, right? They could actually, it, it, the city actually holds all the cards in the RFP. They could say, oh, you gotta do, it's, this one is gonna be mixed income, it's gonna be 50% market for whatever, and then it's gonna be 50% ELLA, right? They could have done that, but they didn't. And, and I think that's something where, when the city has leverage, when the city owns the property, um, they have much more ability to, to, to ask for more, and they should. I'm just gonna say, the devil's advocate side to that is if they do the 60% AMI, they can size more money and they can give more proceeds to NYCHA. I, I, yep. I don't, not that I agree, I agree with yep. you. They hold the cards and they yep. can make the determination and yep. say that. But I think again, we're all playing a numbers game on the development side and we're trying to meet all of the stakeholders. Yep. And, and so, the city, the city does need to do a better job, though, and figure out where their priorities lie. That's it. All right. Uh, so we want to give a big round of applause to our panelists. Thank you for.
Thank you for your presentations and taking my texts, my calls, my letters. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, Xavier and I and Jeremiah thought about this forum over tacos at El Paso in August. Sadly, El Paso is no longer there, but we were pleasantly surprised to see the turnout. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Go Have out. Make this a priority. Thank you for hosting. You guys did a great job. Thanks thank so much. Thank you, everyone. Please give another round of applause. If you have questions, we're sticking around. And remember, come to our community board meetings, cb11m.org, so you can actually get more information and get involved and be part of the solution.